So this morning we will be in the book of James, the book of James chapter 2. So you can turn there now if you'd like. James chapter 2. Norio Suzuki was a young Japanese adventure junkie, and in the year 1974, he took a trip to the small Philippine island of Lubang. Now, Norio, who was dressed like a tourist, was kneeling by his campfire when what looked like a ghost began to move in the jungle. Soon, Norio realized this was no ghost at all, but rather an armed soldier. And this soldier was coming quickly towards him. So Norio, of course, arose quickly, and with his trembling hands, he tried to salute the soldier. But this is why he was there. Norio had heard of the legendary soldier Hiro Onoda and wanted to see if he could find him. Onoda was a Japanese intelligence officer during World War II and had been left on the island in 1945 by his commander with the orders to carry on guerrilla warfare until Japanese soldiers come back for you. That was an order. Suicide was not an option, and he was told it may take many years. This may be a hundred-year war. Well, it was now 1974, 29 years later, and Onoda was still fighting what he thought was World War II. He had heard no official orders. Not too long before Noria found him, Onoda had just lost his last comrade in, 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 a, in a firefight with the local police. And now, all by himself, he was waging this war alone. Onoda recounts in his wonderful autobiography, No Surrender, that his first impulse was to shoot Norio. But something was off. His dress was just strange. He was wearing rubber sandals with socks, something the islanders would not wear. This man is Japanese, he thought. So Onoda decided to put everything on the line and engage in a conversation. He called to him from the jungle and Norio responded with a Japanese salute and said several times to Onoda's amazement, I'm Japanese. I'm Japanese. Here's how their conversation went down. As, as Onoda emerged from his hiding, he said, did you come from the Japanese government? Are you from the foreign youth cooperation? After Norio told him he's just a tourist, Norio asked him, are you Onoda? Yes, I'm Onoda, he replied. Really? Lieutenant Onoda? Onoda nodded. Noria continued, I know you've been here for a long, long time. I know it's been hard. But Lieutenant, the war is over. Why don't you come back home with me to Japan? Of course he wouldn't. He told him that he would only surrender if he received official proper orders from Major Tanaguchi. Well, three weeks later, Norio returned with Major Tanaguchi. 
And when all three of them were together, Major Taniguchi read aloud a former formal order commanding Onodo to surrender. He did. If, if the Japanese special forces are known for anything, loyalty, allegiance. Well, let me ask us a question this morning. What is the church? Specifically, the church in America. What is the church known for? Not too long ago, I asked some of my non-believing friends and co-workers, family members, to define Christians only using one word. The most common by far, hypocrisy. Ouch. And though that was hard to hear, it was harder to disagree with. It seems like it's just one thing after another. I don't know about you guys, but, but, but I just kind of throw this information under the rug. Shake my head like, not again, Lord, and move on. From our own church planting network's co-founder, Mark Driscoll, and the rise and fall of Mars Hill, to the beloved Christian apologist, Ravi Zacharias, and the crushing secrets that came out after his death. To just a couple weeks ago, as the investigation ended, and our nation's largest Christian denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, fully exposed. A good old boys club, really. Russell Moore says, if people reject the church because they reject Jesus and the gospel, we should be saddened, but not surprised. But what happens when people reject the church because they think we reject Jesus and the gospel? And what if people don't leave the church because they disapprove of Jesus, but because they've read the Bible and have come to the conclusion that the church itself would disapprove of Jesus? That's a crisis. I think it's safe to say that the church in America right now is in a bit of a crisis. 2020 exposed a lot. And instead of being known for our love for one another and our unity, like our Lord commanded us to be, the church showed that we're just as obsessed with winning and just as divisive as the world around us. It's sad, really. What about your own life? Apart from your theology, what, what religious box you check off, what you profess with your mouth, apart from all of that, could somebody actually look at your life? like Monday through Saturday, even the moments when nobody is around you. Could somebody look at your life and see a Christian? Because James is going to show us this morning, he's going to argue that, that Christians don't just believe a certain way. Christians live a certain way. He's going to show us that saving faith is working faith. That the gospel demands allegiance. So if you're not already there, James chapter 2. James chapter 2. 
James is going to show us four things this morning. This will be our outline if you're a note taker. First, faith without works is useless. Second, faith without works is ineffective. Third, faith without works cannot save. And finally, faith without works is dead. So first, faith without works is useless. Look with me at, look with me at verse 14. Verse 14, James 2. What good is it, my brothers or brothers and sisters? What, what good is it, church, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Up to this point in this letter, James has been very clear. You must be doers of the word and not hearers only. That true religion is is actually caring for the most vulnerable among you. That that King Jesus' royal law is to love your neighbor as yourself, all the while not showing favoritism. James doesn't spend a whole lot of time theologizing. James' concern is how these professing Christians are living out their theology. Remember, James is the gospel on the ground. Our passage this morning is the climax in James's plea for true religion. James has, has already spilled much ink talking about works. And so now he's anticipating a response. Like, yo, James, I thought this is all about faith. You keep telling us about more things to do. And that's a legitimate concern. How do you respond to that? James begins with a question, which we just read. What what good is it, he said, if someone says they have faith but do not have works, can that faith save him? And then he answers his question with another question, a rhetorical one. Verse 15, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Answer, it's no good. (laughs) James stays in the arena of the needy among them. This isn't the guy at church who's just scraping by, paycheck by paycheck, grabbing clothes at Goodwill and Walmart, eating Wendy's as opposed to (laughs) Chick-fil-A. No, this is someone who lost their job struggling to survive, no money to even clothe themselves, let alone their family, running out of food and resources, losing weight and hope. And this group of Christians in their Christianese says, oh, beloved brother and sister, may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. In the name of Jesus, feed yourself and your family, brother. Sister, by the power of the Holy Spirit, put some clothes on. Go in peace. Goodbye and good luck. Now James kills two birds with one stone in this illustration. First, what good is that? No good. And so likewise, faith without works is useless. Good for nothing. But he also reiterates a point he's been making. A love for God makes us love people who are made in his image. 
Loving God and caring for the needy among you is what James is all about. Because this is what Christianity is all about. Jesus in Matthew 25, a a passage we often skim past because it makes us feel pretty uncomfortable. But Jesus says, truly I tell you, whatever you did for for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did to me. Then he will say to those on the left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. Faith without works is useless. Next, faith without works is ineffective. Look at verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Like Paul often did in Romans, James has now made up a character. Maybe he's even heard, this is what some people in this church are saying. You have faith. I have works. In other words, James There's different kinds of Christians in this world, you know. There are the thinking ones. Their their strength is their intellect. They're always growing in their theology. Others, James, we're more practical. We like to do instead of reflect. You have faith. I have works. Can't we all just get along? Stop being so exclusive, James. James is going to say, perish that thought. Middle of verse 18. Show me your faith apart from works, and I will show you my faith by my works. In other words, there are not two categories of Christians. The ones who think and the ones who do. There's only authentic faith and counterfeit faith. And authentic faith, James says, is, is faith in action. It can be seen. And counterfeit faith, on the other hand, is invisible. Like in the Gospel of Mark, when they get the paralytic man up the roof so that Jesus can heal him. What does that passage say? It says, when Jesus saw their faith. This is what James is talking about. Faith that can be seen. Faith that moves. Faith that is visible. He keeps going. Verse 19. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Again, faith without works is ineffective. Faith is simply intellectual assent. Believing certain things about God, this makes us no better than the demons. Yikes, James. I mean, the demons have sound doctrine. Better doctrine than most pastors and theologians, myself definitely included. There's no such thing as an atheist demon. And hell is full of really good theologians. What James is saying is that sound doctrine, as important as it is, and we we care about theology at RP. We're about to be rolling out our, our Redemption Institute this fall. Theology classes. 
because doctrine matters. What we believe about God has eternal consequences. But James is saying that correct doctrine about God, as important as it is, is ineffective apart from works. Next, faith without works cannot save. Faith without works cannot save. And here's where some red flags just went up. I know some of you guys are giving me that eye, that look. I saw that, Josh. Scaring me over here with those muscles, too. But, but here's where we're going to have to get a little theological. So, so fasten your seatbelts here for a few minutes. There's a reason why this passage is one of the most controversial in all the Bible. This is the passage used by many to show people that the Bible contradicts itself and therefore is not trustworthy. Faith without works cannot save. Again, as I say that, I know some of you guys are thinking, have we gone heretical since Pastor Mark left for his sabbatical? Some of you remember our time in Romans and are thinking, this does not sound anything like Paul. And you're right. At first glance. Here's what Paul says. Throw that on the screen. One is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. James here in verse 24. You can move a slide. A person is justified by by works and not by faith alone. Paul says you're you're justified by faith. His logic in Romans 4 is look to Father Abraham. He was justified not by works but by faith as he he quotes um, Genesis 15. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. James says, starting in verse 20, So you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless. His logic, look to Father Abraham. Verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Quoting Genesis 15. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. This is why Martin Luther calls James the epistle of straw. This is why our GC had a lively discussion a couple weeks ago. At first glance, it sounds like Paul and James do not agree with one another about salvation. So This is kind of a big deal. And you need to straighten some things out before we leave here this morning. Because they could not agree with one another more when it comes to salvation. And that's why context is so important. When Paul is talking about justification by faith alone, apart from the works of the law, it's pretty important we define Paul's understanding of works of the law. We're talking circumcision, ethnic boundary markers, keeping the Sabbath, obeying the old covenant commandments. 
Paul's point is crystal clear in Romans and Galatians that you do not have to become a Jew to then become a Christian. And you're not saved by keeping the old covenant law. Instead, you're saved by the good news of Jesus and what he accomplished with his perfect life, atoning death, sin-conquering resurrection, and climatic king-enthroning ascension. But do you remember what Paul's purpose was for writing Romans? Romans 1.5 says to bring about the obedience of faith. Obedience of faith. Now this sounds a little more like James. The obedience of faith. This is the gospel on the ground. Notice James doesn't say works of the law like Paul. He just says works. New Testament scholar Miriam Kamel, she says, works here are not the Pauline works of the law, such as circumcision, but rather the works of love, such as caring for those who are in need, not showing favoritism, being humble or being slow to speak. In essence, works are the sum total of a changed life brought about by faith. The obedience of faith. James asked earlier, if someone says, if someone professes they have faith but do not have works, can that faith save? No way. That faith, James and Paul would agree, cannot save. Because saving faith is working faith. Theologian Scott McKnight says, For James, works means a life of loving God and loving others. And loving others means deeds of compassion towards those in need. If you have no love for God that is shown by the lack of love for others. Let me say that again. If you have No love for God that is shown by your lack of love toward others. Stop calling yourself a Christian. Because you're not. Before we all leave here doubting our salvation, though some of us should, like James is not messing around. This is a matter of life in death. But let me read this encouraging quote by Denver Seminary Professor Craig Blomberg about this passage. He says, saving faith by definition means that the spirit enters a person's life to begin conforming them to the likeness of Christ. This transformation cannot be quantified. So stop looking at your neighbors may be different in every person in detail and regularly involves many forward and backward steps. But over time, it does result in changed living. Abraham was declared righteous when he believed that God would do what he said he would do. That in his old age, him and Sarah would have a boy. And through this seed, the nations would be blessed. Abraham believed the gospel and was justified by faith. Was his life lived out in perfect obedience from that moment? Heck no. 
I mean, he often took God's promise into his own hands. He got a girl not named Sarah pregnant because he doubted God. He whored out his own wife to save his own life twice. And I don't care how good their marriage counselor was. I'm sure Sarah brought that up every now and then. (laughs) But his faith, like our passage says, was completed. It was vindicated. It was proved to be authentic faith when after God gave Abraham his son, and then God asked him to sacrifice his son. Abraham was obedient. His faith worked. Imagine that walk with his beloved son. Isaac, maybe 12 at this point. Hey, dad, what are we going to sacrifice up there anyways? God will provide, son. I wonder what his heart rate was at when he said that. Let's not skip past these stories so quickly when we're reading our Bibles. Like imagine this scene as Abraham pins down his beloved son. He goes to execute him. Believing that God would raise him up even from the dead. But then God shows up. He gives him a ram to sacrifice instead. This is the obedience of faith. Saving faith is working faith. Soren Kierkegaard says, the actions that James ascribes to Abraham are not keeping the law, but rather the radical obedience of faith itself. James's great contribution to the Christian life is not on the doctrine of justification, but in helping us to see that true faith is radical obedience. True faith is radical obedience. It works. This is why Jesus can interchange, believe, and obey. When he says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. Saving faith is working faith. Faith that obeys. You know the tree by its what? Fruit. Yes, and unfortunately, Holly and I just had to dig up and throw away this lovely tree that our HOA made us plant a year ago. I think I used it even in a sermon illustration before. Eden named him Sonny. We had an attachment to him. And so why would we dig him up and throw him away? Well, because I dropped the ball and stopped watering him. (laughs) Gosh. So back to Home Depot just like that. The, the, the lack of leaves by the end of May proved to me the deadness of this tree. A healthy tree at its root produces fruit. And likewise, true and authentic faith produce works. Produce fruit. We must not get these twisted. The Spirit indwells those who truly believe, authentic faith, and then the Spirit causes us to obey God. Fruit works. Could you imagine if I grabbed some leaves from the backyard and I stapled them onto the tree? 
Eden, Sonny's doing great. (laughs) In the same way, you don't become a Christian by trying to do some good things here and there. But when you are a Christian, namely, the gospel of grace has rocked your world. You now live a life of good works. And these works vindicate your saving faith. James gives another example of authentic faith using Rahab the prostitute. Look at verse 25. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? So James, just to be clear as to who is capable of acting out their faith, uses a most likely candidate, the esteemed father Rahab, and a very unlikely one, Rahab the prostitute. Whether a patriarch or a prostitute or anyone in between, the life of faith is lived out by the one who has true faith. Rahab, Abraham, and us are justified by works and not faith alone. So if you profess to be a Christian, can explain the gospel, even unpack some of the mysteries of the Trinity, but you have no love for God, no love for neighbor, your your so-called faith has zero marks of obedience, our final point, faith without works is dead. Look at verse 17. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And verse 26, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Unfortunately, I I had to attend one of my best friend's dad's funeral in December. Um, He he was a a pastor, a godly father, husband, um, grandpa, amazing pizza maker. He had a role in, in, in my, you know, early discipleship. And then through a surgery gone wrong, he died early. The open casket was hard. Like, yeah, that's Gene, but, but that's not Gene. He's not there. James is telling us this morning that counterfeit faith is a corpse without a spirit. But unlike a funeral, counterfeit faith can fool some people. You can even fool yourself. But you can't fool God. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. That doesn't sound like an atheist. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does. (laughs) Does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Saving faith is working faith. So if your faith amounts to a, a sinner's prayer that you prayed when you were 5, 7, 9, 12, 26, trade in that faith for authentic faith. Faith that works. Or if you got baptized when you were seven because your dad scared you with his understanding of hell and of course you didn't want to go there, trade in that faith for authentic faith. Faith that 
works. Because faith without works is dead. As we close, Sam Alberry says, We do not always live what we say we believe or even think we believe. But we do always believe what we live out. We always believe what we live out. So my question, friends, as you look at your own life, what do you believe? Honest with yourself, as you look at your own life, what do you actually believe? Are your deeds demonstrating that your faith is authentic? If so, praise God. And keep walking out the Christian life by the power of the Holy Spirit. Apart from him, you can do nothing. Or do your works prove to yourself that your faith, though maybe doctrinally sound, might be counterfeit? If so, unlike the demons, you can still repent. Turn from a life of hypocrisy and turn to the God who gives grace. I have to say this, the the Christian life of obedience only makes sense in light of who Jesus is. James only uses the name Jesus twice in this letter. In the introduction in chapter 1 and then the beginning of chapter 2. But he calls him Jesus Christ. Now we know Christ is not Jesus and James' last name. But how we say Jesus Christ, or how we so easily interchange Jesus with Christ, can often sound like a nickname or a last name. James wrote this letter to Jews. When they hear the word Christ, they can't interchange that name with Jesus because it's not a name. Christ is a title. Christ means the anointed one. Christ means the Messiah. Or maybe the easiest way for us to comprehend this, Christ means king. Unfortunately, Jesus enthroned as king, known theologically as the doctrine of the ascension, is often an aside to our gospel rather than the climax of the gospel. If all you hear is that Jesus died for your sins, rose from the grave for your justification, and now you're forgiven through faith, it can be easy to think that James is in danger of missing the gospel by focusing so much on works. But maybe we're the ones in danger of missing the gospel. The gospel is the good news proclamation that Jesus the king pre-existed as son of God was sent by the father and took on another nature humanity the seed of David unlike Abraham's son Isaac whom God spared by giving him a ram instead God's only son Jesus the lamb of God took on the sin took the sin of the world on his shoulder and died on a cross. He was buried, descending to the realm of the dead, 
was raised from the dead on the third day, appeared to many witnesses, including his brother James, and was enthroned, enthroned at the right hand of God as Christ, the ruling Christ. In other words, Jesus the Christ is the saving king. He has now sent his Holy Spirit to his people so they can live under his rule and he will come again as final judge to reign. James is challenging because we are autonomous Americans. We don't like to be told what to do and we love our freedom. But if the Savior Jesus not only saves me from my sin, but Jesus the Christ is also the reigning king, well, that has massive implications as citizens of his kingdom. Our sovereign king is so supreme, he doesn't stand up for any national anthem. But one day, every knee will bow before him. Call him king of kings and lord of lords. James is no epistle of straw. James is rather the unpacking of faith, the obedience of faith, the gospel on the ground, the call for radical obedience to Jesus the Christ. A pastor friend of mine talks about faith like a diamond. Yes, it's intellectual assent. Certainly it's deep trust like when you sit down in a chair or jump off a plane with a parachute. It's also assurance of things hoped for, conviction of things not seen. But one of its facets is allegiance. Faith gives allegiance to the king of kings. Saving faith is working faith. Or as one author put it, justifying faith is a faith that endures, matures, and acts in loyalty to God. Hiro Onoda's 29-year stint in the Philippines can be summed up with one word, allegiance. And as we look ahead at our changing world, what will we be known for? Jesus did not say, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up my cross, and believe in me. He said, whoever wants to be my disciples must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Will you follow Christ? Let me end with this quote. Imagine a world where people were skeptical of what we believed, but envious of how well we treated one another. Imagine a world where unbelievers were anxious to hire, vote for, work for, work with, and live next door to Christians because of how well they treated one another and how well we treated them. We can choose to follow Jesus. We do not get to choose what following Jesus looks and sounds like. It's been prescribed. It's on the label. It looks and sounds like Jesus. Let's pray.
Oh Lord, thank you that you are our Savior. You have died for our sins that separated us from the Father, but you are also the King, the Christ, the Messiah who rules and reigns now. Lord, I pray that, that RP would be a church that, 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 that our faith works, that we would not be hearers only, but that we would be doers of your word. Lord, we love you and we praise you. We pray for radical obedience to be seen and felt and lived out in our lives in Parker. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in, in baptism, as believers, we are making an oath. We are pledging allegiance. We are going public with our faith. And every week we take the Lord's Supper. We take communion. This is Jesus' other ordinance where we get to renew that oath, renew our allegiance to God to Christ as king, to God and with one another. So if, if you are a follower of Christ, if Jesus is king, this meal is for you. Come and take the, the bread signifies his body that was broken. The juice reminds us of his blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. If, if Christ is not king of your life, please don't take these elements. Instead, take Christ to be your savior and to be your king whom you will follow all the days of your life.